Scripture today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 65. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your heads shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there will be no one to help you. Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless." A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall not But you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you. And you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. 
They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall... It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flocks, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns, until your high and fortified walls, in which you trusted, come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left." in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything she will eat them secretly, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of the heavens, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot." But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sight that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. This is God's word for us. Father, you know there are places in your word that if we're being honest... Most of the time, we would, we would rather avoid. There is a certain sorrow and fear and even a numbness that 
quickly sets in when we read and listen to Scripture like this. So my prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would guard and protect us from running toward whatever we wish we were feeling right now. And you would help us to linger long enough in your word, in this part of your word, that at the level of our emotions and our feelings and our affections, we would shudder and recoil and tremble at what you call us to shudder at and recoil at and tremble at. Help us to be a people that take evil and wickedness as seriously as you do. Amen. I, I would argue just as I was praying that, that perhaps the most devastating effect of sin on mankind is the way it causes us to, to take gravely serious matters and to, to treat them with lighthearted frivolity. What, what do I mean by that? We, we take spiritual realities like the judgment of God that, that should produce a trembling awe in our souls. And we prefer to turn the whole concept into a catchy jingle that's fit for a wink and a smile and a, a few good laughs over the holidays. And I'm thinking in particular of the hit Christmas song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Which I know, it's like first weekend you can play Christmas music, hear the pastor goes dissing Christmas music, that's not what I'm doing. But it does reflect something about how we think what we believe. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for Goodness sake. I, I think that song really captures something of our culture's attitude toward morality. What do I mean by that? That, that we, we like to hold on to, to moral categories like good and bad. But we've, we've cut loose or just jettisoned all the moral foundations, including the idea that someone will actually hold us accountable for the way we live. We, we, we certainly still think Christian and non-Christian alike, you know. We, we hope that those people who've hurt us in our life will eventually get what's coming to them. We all want that. I've never met someone that didn't want that on some level. But, but the whole idea of accountability outside of myself has, has really become, not just in our Christmas music, in our culture, friends, it's, it's become a relic of days gone by. At least in the West, it's, it's like Santa now. It's, it's just a whimsical myth. It's a, a figment of our imagination. It's, it's nothing more than a result of our collective longing for justice. 
And we think, you know, besides, I'm, I'm a decent person, pastor. So what's the worst that can happen? Right? So what if I miss out on a few presents from some old guy in a fat suit? Nobody takes him seriously anyway. And nobody's perfect. So why not just enjoy the ride? You do you. I'll do me. And we can all keep hoping out that somehow in some way everything will work out in the end. Whatever that means. Until then, I'll keep drinking to St. Nick. Do do you feel the the casualness in that? If I ask you, what is the oldest lie in the universe? What would you say? What's the oldest lie in the universe? Friend, it's Genesis 3-4. But the serpent said to the woman... You will not surely die. Does your own conscience, friend, not whisper the contrary? If if you're willing to, to turn off the music, stop swiping your credit card, and listen, The collective witness of Scripture does not whisper on this issue. It shouts. It declares. It, it proclaims. It, it lovingly warns from beginning to end over and over and over and over again. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I say all that because the the divine judgment that just comes crashing over you like a waterfall... (laughs) When you read the second half of Deuteronomy 28, it's, it's not an anomaly. It's, it's not random. It's, it's not an otherwise loving God just having a really bad day. <laughs> and, it's, and it's certainly not something you should apologize for, Christian. Or try to explain away to, to family members or friends that Don't like Christianity because of chapters like this. Friend, Deuteronomy 28 is our only hope. It's your only hope. That that wickedness will be punished. And that righteousness will prevail. It's your only hope for those things. Justice will prevail because God will prevail. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a holiday myth. I'm not talking about Santa Claus. I'm talking about the moral foundation of the universe in which you dwell. Where your entire life goes down from beginning to end. Your choices really matter. They really matter. 
that the whole second half of this chapter, Deuteronomy 28, it's not a comfortable passage to read. You think it's a comfortable passage to preach? <laughs> it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be. Because it's a warning. It's a warning. What's the warning? That the path of disobedience is the path of death. The whole chapter, it's a warning. Israel, king's way, friend. The path of disobedience to God is the path of death. Verse 15, look there. If you will not obey the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you were here two weeks ago, you may have noticed, Mike was reading, that Moses devotes nearly four times as many verses to the reality of God's judgment than to the reality of God's blessing. Why is that? It's not because God is more eager to judge than he is to bless. Why is it? It's because God knows which part of his character we most frequently forget. Because we want to forget. We prefer to forget. And so Moses' pastoral aim here, because remember he's preaching to Israel, is really pretty simple. He's motivating Israel to choose the path of life instead of the path of death. He's motivating them. Israel, choose the path of life, not the path of death. So to do that, what's he do? He impresses on their minds in graphic detail the seriousness of disobedience. If you walk out of the meeting this morning and disobedience sits more serious on your heart than when you came in, you feel the seriousness of that, you feel the weight of that, you feel the consequences of that, that's a win. That's a win. Because it's really serious. And our hearts don't like that. We don't want to go there. We want to be told happy things, cheerful things, feel good things. And in the process, we condemn ourselves to hell. This chapter is an exceedingly helpful meditation on the nature of God's judgment. And so we're going to meditate on that this morning. Why is it a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? I'm going to give you four answers to that question. Okay? Here's the first. It's a fearful thing because God's judgment is just. God's judgment is just. By just, I mean that every expression of divine judgment in these verses is more than just a spiritual reality. It's exceedingly good. Why? Because it perfectly accords, lines up, with what is true and right. Which is simply another way of saying God's judgments are just. And, and the justice of God's judgments, it surfaces, it shows up, it's displayed in, in the reasons that Moses gives for God's judgment. Okay, why? How do we know God's judgment is just? Well, among other reasons, because of the reasons for God's judgment that Moses flags here. Consider all the verses where he uses phrases like, because, if, or on account of, to explain what will compel the Lord to punish Israel. At a basic level, what is it? It's their disobedience. Their disobedience to God's law revealed in his word. Look at verse 15 again. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, all these curses shall come upon you. But I hope you noticed, even in the way Moses describes their disobedience there, what I just read, their disobedience points to a deeper issue than just their behavior. You know, what, what they're doing, what they're not doing. Use an illustration of Help us understand this. 
Disobeying God's word is not like breaking the speed limit on 288. I won't ask how many of you have ever broken the speed limit on 288. But if you get pulled over for going 78, you're not personally sinning against Jonathan Bloom. Or whoever the officer happens to be. Okay? You're not personally sinning against them. You've simply violated a legal requirement. Right? So you pay the fine. You move on, hopefully a bit slower. That's not what disobeying God's word is like. That's not what it's like. Okay? When we disobey God's word, we're not just breaking a random rule. We are rejecting God himself. It's personal. It's relational. Spiritual disobedience is always like that. Why? Because God's word is a personal expression of God's authority. Notice Moses in verse 45. He doesn't say, because you did not obey, period. He says what? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Look at verse 20. It's even clearer. It's because you have forsaken me, the Lord says. And I think here's where we're Deuteronomy 28. It really forces us to answer a crucial question. What's that? Why is personally rejecting the Lord such a big deal? You ever wonder that? Or have you had a friend ask you that? Why, why is personally rejecting the Lord such a big deal? Why, why is it more than just a religious issue? Why, why is it a justice issue such that to reject him is to justly bring down the curse of his judgment on yourself? Why is that? Well, friend, it's a justice issue because of the weight of God's glory. That's the reason. Because of the honor and reverence that that our God deserves. Whenever we disobey God or his word, we're belittling him. We're shaming him. We're standing before, before infinite majesty, before God who is exceedingly worthy of praise and saying through our disobedience, you're not great at all. I know better than you do. Which is why I'm going to live my life my way instead of your way because I'm more awesome than you are. That's what you're saying. Whether you know it or not, whenever we disobey the Lord, to disobey him is to, is to withhold, in other words, From God, the worship that is due his name. Look at verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. What's Moses' point? That the greatest injustice in the universe, friend, please hear this, is not how white people have historically treated black people in our nation, or how fishermen treat dolphins, or how your boss will treat you next month in your annual performance evaluation. The greatest injustice in the universe is how all of us have failed to stand in awe of our creator and our king. The king of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom belong honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The fear of the Lord, in other words, of which he's exceedingly worthy. The the fear that we express through obedience and withhold through disobedience does not consist of some kind of terror Of his judgment. Don't hear that in verse 58. 
that you may fear this glorious and awesome name. Okay, are you saying you want me to, to stand in terror of who you are, God? No. That's not the fear Moses is talking about. It's not a mind your P's and Q's lest you get smacked kind of fear. What sort of fear is it? It's a trembling awe. A heartfelt delight in the beauty of the Lord that compels us to serve the Lord with gladness. Look at verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. Here's what Moses is saying, okay? Begrudging obedience, just towing the line or, or morosely doing your duty is not a moral step up from disobedience. It's a continued act of disobedience. Why? Because divine justice, it, it lays claim to more than your behavior, my friend. It lays claim to your affections. It lays claim to your heart. Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, the psalmist says. Are you, are you loving what is supremely worthy? Are you, are you delighting in what is supremely beautiful? Are you, are you pursuing pleasure in what is eternally satisfying? That is what the glory of God justly demands from us. Let's go back to 2.88. Do the police care if you are joyfully driving 64.9 miles per hour down that interstate? Do they? No. You could be cussing under your breath the entire time you're driving, and they could care less because at least behaviorally, you are keeping the speed limit. Friend. Obeying the Lord is radically different than that. Because the weight of his glory, it demands that he be honored, revered, worshipped, loved, treasured by all that you are, all that you have, including your affections and your heart. (laughs) What you love, what you rejoice in, what you delight in, God is exceedingly worthy of that. It's the only kind of response to God that pleases God. Joyful obedience. So do not think that that's just an option for really extroverted Christians. Or or emotional Christians. You know, there are times even in my own life where I find myself thinking, okay, Lord, Fine, I really don't want to do that, but because you command me to, I will do it anyway. I will love my boys. I will love my wife, but I'm certainly not going to do that cheerfully because I'm not feeling cheerful right now. And you should just be grateful I'm doing it at all. You ever thought that? Friend, in that moment, what's gone wrong? I have lost sight of what God is exceedingly worthy of. I've lost sight of his glory. I'm disobeying the Lord because I'm not giving him the glad, joyful, wholehearted worship to his name. Why why did Israel fail to justly fear the Lord with gladness? Did you catch that? Why, Why did she fail to do that? To fear the Lord with gladness. Justly so. Look at verse 47 again. It's because she chose something else as the center of her joy. Verse 47. What was it? The abundance of all things. The abundance of all things. In other words, the problem was not that she lacked joy and gladness. The problem was that God ceased to be the center of her joy and gladness. She, she relocated, she, 
She withdrew her joy out of the one who is exceedingly glorious, our creator. And she relocated the center of that joy in something that is far less glorious. Created stuff. Mark 4.18, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What's, what's Jesus saying there? That the ultimate test of devotion to Yahweh, in many respects, is how you relate to him when you have everything else. You think about that? How do you relate to him when you have everything else? When you have everything the world lives for. The house, the cars, the money, you name it. Do you continue to wholeheartedly obey him? Or does all that stuff, all those possessions, do, do they slowly but surely steal away your affection such that you keep coming to church with your family on Sunday, but when we begin to sing, you just don't feel much of anything in here anymore. Your joy's flown the coop. And yes, there are times that that's because providence of God, we struggle to see him in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Even though we continue to look to him in our suffering and sorrow. But more often than not, that's because the center of our joy has flown the coop and gone somewhere else. The obedience justice requires is a joyful, glad obedience grounded in the glory of who God is. Which is why his judgment rightly falls on those who fail to love him with all their heart. That's what Moses is saying. Whereas Jesus said many years later, if we are silent, the very rocks will cry. God's judgment is just. Second, God's judgment is personal. It's just and it's personal. And if this sounds like a point I made two weeks ago in regard to God's blessing, no, the projection didn't get mixed up. <laughs> Moses makes the same point here in the second half of chapter 28, okay? The, the curses are just like the blessings in that they both come directly from the hand of God. If you were counting 18 times, in the second half of the chapter, the Lord is the subject of all the verbs of judgment. Even when other agents, human agents, are involved. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration. 21, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you. 22, the Lord will strike you. 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated. He will bring, he will send, he will scatter, he will give. He's doing it. That this is no put bad into the universe, get bad out. This is if you choose to disobey our creator, he is personally opposed to you. He is against you. He's not for you. When his glory is trampled on, God acts for the sake of his name. He defends his honor. He, he upholds his renown without apology, without hesitation. Look at verse 63. It couldn't be clearer. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, if you choose that path of disobedience, what's going to happen? The Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. If you don't have a category in your mind for God delighting in his own judgments, you don't know God for who he is. What, what's Moses saying? That in response to sin and evil, God is not passive. He's not reluctant. He, he delights to take seriously 
what must be taken seriously. He brings the day of reckoning, the day of justice to pass. And there are some really practical implications to this. The fact that God's judgment is personal. I'll give you two of them, okay? First, whenever you suffer at the hands of wicked men, anyone here ever suffered at the hands of wicked men? In this world, broken world, the curses in Deuteronomy 28, personal judgment of God, that's a refuge for your soul. You you would have no hope without that. Because human judges will fail you, right? Human justice will, will turn a blind eye. God will not do any of those things. Evil will be punished. Righteousness will be rewarded. Why? Because God is personally committed to vindicating the glory of his name. That's a refuge for your soul, friend. Here's the second implication. God's judgment is personal. When you feel guilty on account of the wrong that you know you've done, the curses in Deuteronomy 28, they compel you They should compel you. May they compel us to take seriously what God takes seriously. That's a good thing. Because your guilt and shame before a holy God is real. It's not a mirage or or something that people in pulpits or the pastor in the church you grew up in just kind of made up to scare people and manipulate people. It's real. You you can try to drown that guilt. You can try to drown that shame with with hours of entertainment or drinking or or you can try to just cover all that up by by doing better. But friend, you'll still deserve God's judgment. And on the day Christ returns to to judge the living and the dead, you, you will suffer the curse of death. The curse that even now hangs over your life. Jesus himself will personally sentence you to eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And we have to ask at this point, why is it? Why is it that the personal nature of God's judgment makes us so uncomfortable. Why is it so quiet in here right now? (laughs) Why do sinners like you and me, apart from the Spirit's work in our heart, when you hear what I just said, or your parents say what I just said. You stop your ears, <laughs> cover your face, run away. Or even, you know, get on social media and just lash out at all the people who dare to proclaim or believe such hateful things. And the reason isn't a mystery. Here's why it makes us so uncomfortable. We want to recognize the problem of evil, but we don't want to admit that the problem of evil isn't just something around us, it's something inside of us, right? The problem of evil isn't just a thing out there for philosophy types. You are part of the problem. (laughs) You're in the circle, and so am I. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, when we choose to disobey the Lord, you you are, it's football season, right? What what are we doing? We are personally lining up in opposition on the goal line to the judgment of God. That's what you're doing. We're, We're challenging him on the goal line. And friend, Moses is telling Israel, the Lord is reminding us today, you do that, you line up against God on the goal line, resisting, opposing his judgments, you will never prevail. You'll never prevail. Why? Because he's completely in the right. We're completely in the wrong. And and you won't be able to, to set a block and follow your center 
and do an end run and grab the edge and avoid him. Why not? Because his judgment isn't just personal, point number three. His judgment is unavoidable. It's just, it's personal, and it's unavoidable. I think it's, the, it's in some ways, the all-encompassing, comprehensive, curses coming from everywhere, character, this chapter, that is so frightening. Verse 16, you'll be cursed in all places. Verse 19, you'll be cursed at all times. Verse 17, you'll be cursed in, in every domain of your existence. No part of your life will remain untouched, the Lord says. And I hope you realize that this list of horrors, it's not an exaggeration. Every one of them came to pass. Centuries later, when when the Assyrians and later the Babylonians came and, and carried off Israel into exile on account of our disobedience, what happened? Sickness, drought, famine, defeat, death, mental illness, disability, oppression, slavery, humiliation. They just all continued until Israel was completely destroyed. And God promises that no less than nine times in the second half of this chapter. It will continue. My judgment will endure until you are destroyed, until you are destroyed, until you are destroyed. I won't relent. I won't hold back. I won't turn a blind eye. Look at verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed. And perish quickly. Translation, Israel, resistance is futile. If if you abandon the Lord of life and try to create life for yourself, it's not going to work. It's never going to work. Look at verse 29. You will not prosper in your ways, says the Lord. And that's why in in verses 30 and 31, and then in 38 through 41, Moses just starts piling up image after image to to describe the vanity, the futility of every human effort to find life apart from God. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before you, but you shall not eat any of it. You shall carry much seed into the field, but gather in little. You'll have olive trees, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours. What's the cumulative effect of that? Israel, if you choose the path of disobedience, there will be no deliverance. There will be no life. There will be no joy. That path only goes to sorrow. It doesn't doesn't make joy pit stops along the way and you can just kind of hit the pit stop then get back on the path of life. It only goes to sorrow. There'll be no salvation. There'll be no escape. Look at verse 52. The fortified cities in which you trusted, what's going to happen to them? They're going to come down throughout all your land. Verse 29, there shall be no one to help you. Verse 31, there shall be no one to help you. Verse 32, you shall be helpless. And I think most grievous of all, in verse 68 at the very end, Israel, you'll return to your slave masters. You'll go back to Egypt. But when you get there, They won't even be willing to buy you. Your latter condition, because you disobeyed me, will be worse off than you were at first. And yet, friends, some of us are still tempted to say, so be it. So be it. I don't need God or his blessings. I don't like his rules. I don't want his land. 
I'm certainly not interested in this whole relationship with Yahweh thing. I will do my own thing in my own land and be just fine. Thank you very much. Have fun with church on Sunday. Friend, the Lord says to you, that won't work. It's not going to work. We, we, we like to reduce God's judgment to a, a, a list of potential beliefs on a buffet line of religious options. You know, if, if you want some of that, sure. If you don't like that, well, just don't, you know, leave it on the buffet for the other people to eat. It, we, scripture says the judgment of God isn't like that. It's not a spiritual option you can buy into or not if it works for you. The judgment of God is where all of human history is steadily marching. It's the final chapter of your story, whether you want it to be or not. It's our end. It's unavoidable. God's commitment to his own glory guarantees, in other words, that you will not reject the Lord of life and find life. You will not reject the Lord of life and find life. Even in exile, Israel, your suffering is going to continue. Look at verse 65. And among these nations, you shall find no respite. And there you shall, there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. Some of you know what that feels like. That, that's exactly how you felt before the Lord brought you to your senses. Some of you feel that right now. You, you look successful to everyone around you, but, but on the inside, you're dying. You're languishing. You, you feel hopeless because you know you have no hope. And none of the medication you're taking is fixing that. As much as it's a gift. And with every passing day and every passing year, the, every birthday, the, the hour of your death, the hour of your judgment just keeps drawing closer. And you feel that. You dream about that. You believe, Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know God's judgment is just. You know it's personal. You know it's unavoidable. But friend, Deuteronomy 28 points to something else too. It is those things, but it's also more. And what I'm about to tell you about God's judgment is the divinely intended effect of this passage. It's the point. So listen to me. God's judgment is a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. It is just. It is personal. It is unavoidable. But it's not just that. It's a call to repentance. I want to remind you of the, the biblical context of all these curses in chapter 28. Where are they found? They're found in a covenant document. It's the book of Deuteronomy. What, what, what is a, a covenant document designed to do? It's designed to establish relationship and it's designed to preserve relationship. What's that tell us about this chapter? That all the curses here, as I said at the very beginning, they are warnings Warning signs for Israel on the road of relationship with Yahweh. So, so those of you who drive, or those of you who can't wait to drive in the next year or two, 
including those of you whose parents don't want you to be driving. But you know what I mean by driving. You have familiarity with driving. If you've ever driven down a new road in the middle of nowhere, warning signs are a precious gift. Precious gift. You know, you ever come up on a road you don't know in the mountains and you're flying along at 55 and then suddenly in front of you, you see one of those, you know, boop, boop, 15 miles an hour. When you see that, do you think, daggone it, I can't believe someone had the gall to tell me to slow down. (laughs) I just, what a stupid warning sign. No. Maybe some of you guys out there say that. Don't tell your wife that, okay? You won't make it. But we don't think of warning signs that way when we're driving, do we? They're a gift. Why? Because they keep you on the road of life. (laughs) We're grateful for warning signs. And that's exactly how the reality of God's judgment in this chapter should function in your life. What, what does it do? What's a warning sign do? It claps, our, it claps its hands. It wakes us up from spiritual stupor. And it says what? Danger ahead. Danger ahead. The, the whole point of the chapter is, as Christopher Wright says it so well, is to warn Israelites of the consequences of certain behavior so that they can avoid them. So they won't go barreling down that road. When Israel eventually rejected the Lord as her king, ignored the warning signs, what happened? She lost every good gift she ever received from his hand. It's why there's so many parallels between the the blessings in the first part of the chapter and the curses in the second part. And, And we're not talking about minor blessings lost, right? We're talking about promises of land and offspring at the core of God's covenant with Abraham. Because sin is like that. It claims to offer joy. But the moment we say yes to sin, we find ourselves enslaved to the enemy of our souls. It's it's dehumanizing. Exhibit A, the cannibalism Israel would succumb to in verse 53. Sin is always like that. Promises joy, but it's destructive. Because that path of disobedience, it always leads to death, friend. There, There is only one alternative to that. It's the path of life. The path of repentance. The path of of turning away from sin, turning toward the Lord. And, And even as I say that, please know I'm not talking about waking up every morning and trying to be better and do better or obey more. If at this point in the sermon, you are thinking, okay, I get it. The path of disobedience is the path of death. So the point of this chapter is to obey more. You have completely missed the entire point of the chapter. You've completely missed the entire point of the whole Bible. So think carefully with me here. If that won't work, What is this path of repentance I'm talking about? Well, it starts with recognizing you will never be good enough. You can never obey enough. Repentance means looking to God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's what the Christmas season is all about. When when all the curses came to pass in Israel's national life, what did it prove? That the covenant remained in force, right? That God kept covenant even when Israel did not. God vindicated the glory of his judgment just as he said. Friend, that is the exact same divine faithfulness that drove the Son of God to become a son of man. To become incarnate clothed in human flesh. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he did it to live for you, for us, securing the the eternal favor and blessing of God through perfect obedience for all who trust in him. And he did it to die for us. He, He received in his body and his soul the full 
weight, the full horror, the full suffering, the full shame of every curse written in this chapter and innumerably more. Why did he do that? Because when he was hanging on the cross, all the guilt and shame of those whom God had purposed to redeem rested on God. Is that, does that not blow your mind? Your guilt and shame rested on God. And it rested on God until God died. Until the one who issued the curses had absorbed all the curses. The cross of Christ, it's a monument to the justice of God. Do you think of it that way? It, it shouts, I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. My judgments will prevail. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon God, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's the wonder of the cross, brothers and sisters. In, in the very act of upholding divine justice, Almighty God, the judge of the universe, opens up a fountain of mercy. Because, because Jesus didn't endure just part of the curse of God against your sin. He endured all of it. He, he fully, he completely exhausted the judgment of God for all who trust in him so that no more curse remains. Which is why, as the people of God, because of Jesus, we don't avoid God's judgment. Or ignore God's judgment. Or pretend it away. Or apologize for God's judgment. What do the people of God do because of the cross of Christ? We glory in the judgment of God. We rejoice in the judgment of God. Why? Because when we, where do we see the judgment of God going down? What is the climactic display of the judgment of God in our world? It is not the moment these curses in this chapter came upon the national people of Israel. It's the moment Jesus hung on that cross. That is where we see the judgment of God. We glory in that, friends, because it's a judgment God himself fully and completely satisfied. So that you can be certain when the Lord returns, it will not be to punish his people, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'll end with this. How should Jesus' work on that cross affect the way we think about God's judgment today? Let me give you four brief takeaways that you can think about and meditate on the rest of this week. First, it reminds us that God's judgment is real. Real thing. Whenever you're tempted to think the sin isn't a big deal, I can keep walking this road of disobedience and still enjoy God's blessings. I want you to remember Jesus. You need to see Jesus suspended between heaven and earth on account of your sin. God's judgment is real. Okay? Second, God's judgment reminds us we have no hope apart from Christ. No hope apart from Christ. Christian, you must continue to hold fast to Jesus. You must continue to walk the path of repentance, the path of faith-filled obedience, all the days of your life. Scripture does not call you to have a moment where you are right with God. It says, run the path of repentance <laughs> and keep on running it. What warnings of judgment in Deuteronomy 28 are not meant to prompt you to take the gospel and then smugly say, well now, since I'm a Christian, 
I don't have to worry about such morbid things. No. No. Respond to the warning by holding fast to Jesus, friend. And keep on holding fast by obeying him in every area of your life. Third, this chapter reminds us that wherever we experience painful consequences in our life, on account of our sin, those experiences are ultimately expressions of God's kindness. God's kindness. Why? Because if you're a Christian, God is disciplining you because he loves you. He's he's prodding you back to the path of joy and life because he loves you. And if you're not a Christian, God is kindly getting your attention before it's too late. Foretaste of his judgment. They're they're God's chosen means of, of bringing people to an end of themselves that we might come to our senses and repent. And finally, Deuteronomy 28, judgment of God. It empowers you, Christian, to forgive and refuse to hold grudges against other people because you know that no matter what they've done to you, justice will be satisfied. Either Jesus is punished for that sin or they are punished for that sin. Either way, you will be vindicated. But it's not through your judgment. It's through the Lord's. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Friend, may every warning in this chapter send you running down the path of obedience and keep you running on the path of obedience faith in Jesus because you know a path of disobedience it only leads to death let's pray Father we ask that you would help us to believe you that when you say the path of disobedience leads to death we would take you at your word. Lord, give us the humility to meditate on your judgment, to be sobered by your judgment, and in response to your judgment, to flee to the cross of Christ. Lord, help us as a people to keep running, to keep walking the path of repentance, that we might know your judgment as a glory and our only refuge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.